On the show today, I'm joined by four very special guests. First up, it's my chat with the three stars of the current production of Singing in the Rain, which is touring Australia now. Then, it's my interview with Anthony Rapp, the legendary performer who originated the role of Mark in Rent on both Broadway and in the film. There's all that and more on today's Talk To Me. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Benjamin Mayer McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and we've got a very special lineup on the show today. We've got four guests. First up, the three stars of Singing in the Rain, and then legendary Broadway performer Anthony Rapp joins me. But first, here's my chat with the cast of Singing in the Rain. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the show, and thank you all so much for joining me today. No thank worries. Thank you. Thanks for now, us. this is a rather large sofa of guests I have here, so do you want to go around and introduce yourself and give a little bit of your background? Yeah, well, uh, I'm Grant Armoral, and I'm from South Africa. Um, yeah, I've been in music with her for most of my life. Uh, yeah, what else to say? I don't know. Yeah. Who do you play? I play Don Lockwood in the show. <laughs> um, and that voice then was, my name is Jack Chambers. <laughs> um, I'm from Brisbane in Queensland. And um, yeah, I've been dancing, singing and acting since I was about three years of age. And I play Cosmo Brown. Yes, and I'm Gretel Scarlett. I um, was born and bred in Rockhampton in central Queensland, so another Queenslander. Yes. Um, I play Kathy Selden, and I too, like Jack, um, grew up dancing, singing and acting since I was about three also. So it's our background. I think all of us are pretty well-rounded triple threats here yeah. on the couch. So you have to be to do this show. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Can't get away with it. And what inspired you all to pursue careers in such a, a difficult industry to break into? I don't know. I think, well, for me, it was friends of mine doing, doing drama during um, junior school. And my, one of my friends said, you know, we're doing this thing. Come and do it with us. And then when, we, when I did the trance over from primary school to, to, to uh, high school, I was the only one in the group that was actually carrying on doing it. Um, and then obviously I'd made my friends in that group. And yeah, it just, it's just sort of something that sort of took, took over my life. And, and I always say it chose me in a weird way because I didn't pursue it per se, but it's, I was just doing it. So, yeah, that was me. Um, I don't ever really remember making a decision that this is what I wanted to do. It's just something I've always wanted to do. Um, it's just something I was always passionate about. I mean, there's footage of me in nappies on Super 8 films dancing and, and doing my thing. So I think it was just something I was always meant to do. But in, in regards to musical theatre in general, um, I had my first taste of musical theatre when I was 10, and it was Singing in the Rain, believe it or not, and I played young Cosmo Brown. It was just an amateur production, but that experience is what made me choose the musical theatre path. So, um, yeah, it's nice to come full circle. <laughs> yeah, and for me, I always knew that I wanted to do this. Um, I remember when I was about three years old, just loving every bit of live performance. Um, it was something that was born and bred to do. Um, it, but I do remember making a decision, I think I was about 11, and it was when I graduated grade 7 from what we, we had primary school in Queensland, it was grade 7, and went to high school and I said I want to go to WAPA, I want to do music theatre. No one knew what the hell that was at the time, um, but I had my sights set on it. So I was pretty, I had life figured out pretty early on pretty early for on. me, yeah. <laughs> it's funny to look back now on my year seven yearbook and a few, few people have commented, there's some people who are like, I'm going to be a botanist and an astrologist and all these things. <laughs> they were going to be, no one's turned out to be that, but I <laughs> turned out to do what I put down that I was going to do. <laughs> so I was like, oh well, I had life sorted out. <laughs> you certainly did. Now we're here to talk about Singing in the Rain, mm. which is currently playing at the Adelaide Festival Centre here in uh, South Australia. And it's perhaps one of the most iconic movies of all time. And this is obviously the musical version. How does the film influence your portrayal while also sort of bringing something of yourself to the role? Is that a huge factor when you're playing these you know, iconic characters? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think well, with me, Gene Kelly was so he was so iconic in this mm-hmm. role. Um, but he was Gene Kelly to a lot of you, and I probably will get. I always feel like I'm going to get shut down for saying this, but um, in terms of who he was, I mean, like, Gene Kelly played Gene Kelly, and he was very good at doing that. He was a sing, a song and dance man. But um, in terms of the character of this piece, um, Don Lockwood is the your typical sort of. He is a movie star. You know, he he has a lot of people, a lot of fans who who will mob him whenever he goes out, and there's a certain of the era there's a certain way that people held themselves and stuff um, whereas Gene Kelly was like sort of everyday every guy's guy um, the movie star of that era would be a little bit more held a little bit more poised um, so I kind of would liken him to more of like a George Clooney or more of the leading men in movies nowadays mm. uh, more than Gene Kelly's portrayal of it at, definitely acting wise um, of this character so for me that's kind of where I'm going for my character sure. um well, yeah, obviously I've been a big fan of CNN and uh, the movie since I was a kid. Yeah. So the, 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 the style of the, the movie and obviously Donald O'Connor, the way he played the role, is imprinted in my mind. But I specifically chose not to look at the movie since I got the role because um, I didn't want him to influence anything that I did too much. Um, I knew enough about Cosmo Brown. Because here's the thing, uh, we're playing the roles, not so much the actors. And the actors are who were really quite iconic in, in, in their, um, their skill. And so I had an understanding of who Cosmo Brown was, enough for me to be able to put my own element and a little bit of Jack to that character. So, um, yeah, I try not to copy too much. How did playing a young version of the role in an amateur production all those years ago influence this Oh, look, actually, you know, to be honest, zero influence. Because <laughs> when, when I was what telling do you me, mean? I, <laughs> I had, what, 10 minutes worth of stage time. Um, <laughs> there was really no time to really, you know, delve into a character. He's um, made you the manual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I wouldn't say playing young Cosmo Brown really helped me play him as an adult. But, um, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> is that right? Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for me, um, talking about the influence of, of movie musicals, um, I promised myself after Sandy I would never touch an iconic character ever again, and here I am playing Debbie Reynolds. No, I'm not. That's the thing. We're not playing these char- those people. We're playing the characters that those guys were also cast as. So um, it's always one of those things. It's sometimes, especially in Australia, it's very dangerous to stem too far away from it because the audiences go, oh, it's unfamiliar, I'm not liking what you're doing right now. So you've got to give them a little bit of a spoonful of Debbie Reynolds Mm. as such, talking from my perspective, but also I've got to have a little bit of me on it because that's where the truth comes out through the character. Otherwise, there's no truth to any of these people, these three characters that we play. Um, And if there is no truth to them, they become satirical and they become over the top and then they're not real people on stage so we've got to have a, ma- a major essence of ourselves that bring that we have to bring to the role to keep them realistic and human um, but as I say it, it, it is quite hard to stem away from those sort of movie musicals because they're so iconic in their in their own way but in saying that um, it, it's nice to it, this is such a great hybrid version um, it was such a good st- um, screenplay to stage adaption that they kept the necessity uh, that was inside the film and put it onto stage and the things that weren't working they took out so it's a really good taste of it you walk, you walk away really satisfied having both 
different adaptions of it. I think also if two people, I mean, if two really, if two good yeah. actors are playing a character, you're going to have the essence of the character in both yeah. of those portrayals. There might be slightly different portrayals. Because it's but in the writing. The, yes. right, yes. the character is the, the character at the end of the day. Itself. Exactly. Yeah. So... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think because that film version is there, people have a higher expectation? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Gosh, <yes>. Especially <laughs> in Australia. It's like, as I said, we, we've got this thing here where, as general public, we need familiarity. Uh, so there's, there's a huge pressure to have to do what, um, what people are familiar with. But I think we're, we're all, all three of us in particular, are very strong singer-dancer actors to be able to hold our ground on stage and be proud of the performers that we are and that through our characters come our own performance along with keeping true to the script and the story. So, yeah. And why do you think musical theatre is important for Australian audiences? Mm -hmm. Gets them away from the footy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a tough question. Culture. I yeah. think it's one thing that we need to introduce our kids to these days. We're not... Uh, we, we need to keep it alive. It's really alive and well here in Adelaide, which is great. You'll have all sorts of walks of life come to the theatre, and that, to me, I, I love. I, I love to see children, adults, grandparents, those three generations yeah. all coming to the theatre. I don't just like to see one particular age group. Um, and I think it's important that parents try to bring their kids to keep it alive. Yeah, because it's... Um you know, with uh, your younger generation who might want to choose this certain path, mm. some some families, some parents, they there's that they're not crazy supportive about it because they say, oh, there's no future in it, and you know, it's a lot of hard work um, mm. to put in put into it, and it would not pay off. Um, but I think it, it does pay off if you are really committed. Um, I think Australia still has a little bit of way to go in regards to. You know, funding for the arts and whatnot. Yeah. But let's just, not just go in. Bit, let's yeah. not go into that. I'll start to get a bit red. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Political um, arts over the papers. But um, you know, I I know for me when I see musical theatre, um, apart from being an escapism, um, it's I, I really appreciate what's being done on stage, um, mm. especially when it's coming from if it's something from a movie to stage, you appreciate it so much more because these actors mm. are doing it live. Yeah. And they do it eight times a week. It's, it's a, yeah. such a massive feat to do, and a lot of people forget that. They yeah. they, they they just uh, you like, know. Oh, your life looks so fun. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, it yes. looks so much fun. It looks really easy, and it's really, really not. And so when I sit there and watch something, I go, Oh my gosh, they must be yeah. exhausted. And you understand them. Yes, absolutely. So I don't know where I was going with that, but I just wanted to say that. No, but, I, yeah, no, but but it's in a culture now that that we we have. T TV shows and TV reality shows, you know, I'm a the celebrity, get me out of here, those yeah. sort of things. Yeah, you, you've got all these sort of shows that people just sit home and watch and are entertained by. It's really nice to encourage people to get out of the house and come and see what people have to do eight shows a week. Yeah. Like, it's it's invigorating, it's exhilarating, and it's exhausting all at the same time. Well, it's not instant success because people are actually working really hard to yeah. get where they are instead yeah. of in these, social, in these sort of camera, reality TV yeah. situations <laughs> where they're just sort of instant stars for no apparent reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what do you guys do when an audience isn't clicking with you or the show? Is there a tactic to try and get out of that or try and help them? <laughs> you never perform for a year. I, well, I don't. I no. personally am not affected by the audience. It's like the show you go out there and do should be the same show, whether it's five people or 5,000 people. Um, sometimes they say, you know, oh, the top balcony is closed today. I'm like, I don't care because I still keep playing up as if there's people up in the top balcony. It makes no difference because my character... I don't walk on the stage 
thinking my character's performing to an audience. I'm talking to Don Lockwood here and I'm talking to Cosmo, not to the audience. Yeah. So um, The only uh, difference for me, mm. because he's a comical character and there's a lot of physical comedy for me, um, it depends on the theatre and this, this also comes down to direction and what we're told but um, you know, if you're in an intimate theatre the physicality of things can be brought back a little bit because it's quite intimate and everyone can see clearly whereas if you're in a massive you know, lyric theatre in Sydney where people are in the nosebleed so far yeah. away they can't exactly read your facial expressions so in order to like raise an eyebrow I have to physically move my body to yeah. sort of show that I'm raising an eyebrow um, they're just, they're not decisions I make on a show to show basis, it's it's a decision I make when I am aware of my surroundings and yeah. what is readable for an audience so that they can actually um, see what's going on. Totally, yeah. totally. And the role of Don Lockwood in the show is shared uh, between yourself yes. and, and Rowan. Oh, yeah. uh, what's, what's the reason for that? Well, it's because there's so much... There's so much dancing and there's so much... Like I said, Gene Kelly was the... the he was the choreographer of the movie um, and it was a star vehicle for him. It was a vehicle for him at the end of the day. Um, and in that, he is in every single scene. So, um, there's just, there's a, and that was the movie. <laughs> movie yeah. This now on stage is that you're in every, every, you're in every single scene with costume changes and dances and blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's a lot of physicality to the, to the role and it just makes it easier for the longevity of the performer to split the, to split the performance. It's just like up. with when we had Wicked here yeah. in Adelaide, how we had the alternate that did two shows a week and yeah. the other girl did six. So it's the same with these guys. Yeah. They split both. But because it's such a huge physically demanding role, they've got to do four and four. So yeah. Yeah. similar yeah. with like Jersey Boys. So a lot of um, musicals do it. Jersey Boys just yeah. like yeah. Frankie Valley like that eight times a week. Yeah. It's just you're going to kill yourself. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. <laughs> and does that change the dynamic for you guys when you're working with the different... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, because you're playing, as, as I say, you're, you're reacting off what someone's given you and they're two totally different energies I'm, I'm very lucky to have two very strong boys who with the part of her and dance and stuff I'm so safe in their arms um, so that that's never really anything to freak you out about and it should you should never be freaked out about different people on stage because if you're paying attention and reacting to what they're giving you then you're probably getting the best possible performance as an audience member because you're actually seeing truth yeah. um, because you're reacting to what that person's saying for the first time because you haven't heard them say it in a couple of days so, yeah. Yeah. so that's why it's important yeah. as an actor to be quite open to yeah. your surroundings and aware instead of being in your monotonous um, yeah. I do it like this all the time yeah. adapt so um, and also you know, because we do do this thing all the time eight times a week it can be very groundhog day so yeah. to have different um, keeps on your toes. People to, <laughs> to respond to. It keeps things fresh, fresh for yeah. us. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, and like I said, I obviously appreciate it because it, it allows me to be able to breathe and rest up during the week. So, um, so it's it's a it's it's much better for the show. We were actually very lucky to have Grant here because he's South African. That he um, was flown in very early in Melbourne and because we didn't have an alternate at the time. They were trying to do eight shows a week with the main guy that we had, and it was just a disaster because the role is so big. So you know. We're, we're very, very lucky to have the two boys here to be able to hold the show. Mm. Exactly. Going. It sounds like yeah. it's the glue that, yeah. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, he's yeah. been the glue the whole time, this one here. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, God, Grant's in the building. Save. Save. You can catch me. So, yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> no, no, I mean it. Yeah. Obviously, there's a scene in the, in the play where it rains 
on stage. Really? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. What do you I'm mean? Being, I'm being sorry. <laughs> I want to see it. <laughs> Logistically, how is that for you, as especially dancers? What's the safety like when you're dancing in water? Well, there there is no major. Well, there are. <laughs> There's no safety. There is no safety. safety. Oh, Janice is just like yeah. cross your fingers. Have, yeah, look, <laughs> I mean, once you, we do obviously have rubberized shoes that are specifically geared towards the water and. Um, and the stage is also, they, they took a very long time when they designed the stage in terms of find the best possible floor that wasn't too slippery or too sticky at the end of the day because you've got to do turns and all that kind of stuff. But at the, end of the, at the end of the day, it just relies on your technique. And once you get used to finding out where your weight is and finding out how far you can push yourself in terms of the dancing, it becomes second nature. And you actually realize when you take the water away, what you don't realize what you're doing until that happens. You know, Like when you get to a rehearsal room and you start dancing and you're like, oh my gosh, this feels completely different because your body gets so adjusted to actually dancing in the water and um, what's the most challenging part of being involved in this production most challenging aside from the set (laughs) aside from the stage yeah Um, Um, like we've always had problems with because of the way the set's designed the water floods through the bottom of the set of of the the slats on the stage so there's slight gaps in the stage so of course and that this set is twittered around to many productions of Singing in the Rain. So it's wear and tear is a big thing on this set too. Mm. So, I mean, they are having problems with, with girls with heels and, yeah. and it's just maneuvering around. It's more safety is a bit of yeah. a hard thing. It's yeah. a challenge I've found for myself. And it's, uh, well, my, my challenge personally has been alternating boys every single show. It's a yeah. challenge in itself, but I, I would be bored if I wasn't having a challenge every show. So yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have that challenge thrown at me it's yeah, yeah I'm definitely course. up for it yeah yeah and we're about an hour from showtime now I yeah. think so what's what happens to you guys in the next 50, 50 minutes or so warm up warm, um, up, warm, up, warm up warm up warm up yeah <laughs> physically and vocally yeah you, we make a lot of weird sounds that um, is only sounds natural to other performers <laughs> so funny you just walk down the hallways yeah. and yeah. hearing everyone yeah. <laughs> do their own thing. Having our teas. Yeah. And yeah. It's just prep time mainly. Yeah. you got to get yourself as ready as possible for the show and, yeah, get yourself yeah. In, in the zone. Yeah. I think what, the, what a lot of people don't realise is that as a performer, especially as a leading performer, your whole... Day is your whole day when you wake up is geared towards that performance Absolutely. in the evening. So you're waking up testing out your voice, or you might even do some sort of vocalizing or warming up in the morning. So when you do get here and you you are prepped, you do some warming up, but essentially it's mainly about getting into the zone for the next hour. Yeah, um, yeah doing some physical your day stuff. Been and, your focus yeah. and that's why performers, we are such hard working. You have to be such a hard working uh, uh, person yeah. for this career. It's not we don't just work within the hours that we are paid. We we spend a lot of time <laughs> it's true. outside of that because yeah. we're so passionate about what we do yeah. and really want to be able to. Mind you, I mean, there, there will be a few people you will meet who wouldn't, wouldn't, who wouldn't. care. No, that's whatever. right. But you're not. You can tell. You can actually tell. In all honesty, and I can sit here and say that from shows that I've seen and watched, um, you can tell those performers that haven't focused, that haven't given. They're not giving it 150 yeah. percent um, per show, and that's the thing. Is this show in particular? You've got to give that because it's dangerous otherwise you will slip over you will fall over you will forget your line something will go wrong yeah. if you're not focused so Absolutely. yeah it's just it, 
gears that way. Yeah. You've got to remove that stigma that actors work for, you know, two hours a day. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Someone yeah. goes, oh, you're only doing a show this that show. night. It's like, no, no. Yeah. I'd love your job. You only work from, like, five ride. until nine. <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and then what advice would you guys offer to any young people looking to work in the industry? Practice, work hard, train hard, yeah. study hard. <laughs> yeah, all of that. And then I always add on the end, make sure you're passionate. Yes. If you're not passionate, it's not worth it. Yeah. Yes. It really isn't. Because there's a lot of stuff, as you've heard, like, yeah. there's a lot of stuff to go through. And if you're not yeah. passionate about it, yeah. that passion drives you through it. Yeah. It's just easy to give up halfway through because the passion is there. Totally. Yeah. And it becomes too hard. It's tough. It's a tough space. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do have to let you guys go. But for, for our listeners, where can they find you online and connect with you all? Yeah, oh, look, we've all got Instagram. So yes. my Instagram's at Gretel Scarlet, G-R-E-T-E-L, Scarlet oh, with a double T. I'm Jack is at underscore Jack Chambers underscore. underscore. And I'm at Grant Almerald, double it. L at the end. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you all so yeah. much. And break the leg tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was my chat with phenomenally talented cast of Singing in the Rain Australia. And that show is currently playing in Adelaide before it heads over to Perth. I saw it last week. It is absolutely phenomenal. One of the best musicals to hit Adelaide in a very long time. So do go over and check that out. All the booking details are in the show notes for this podcast. And now it is my great pleasure to be able to bring you a chat with Anthony Rapp. I did this a couple months back just before he was announced as being cast in the new Star Trek series, so we don't talk about that. But we talk about all his work from Rent to If Then to You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and everything above and between. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this chat with the legend, Anthony Rapp. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, Anthony, what inspired you to pursue a career in the in the performing arts? Um, I was a kid when my mom was a nurse at a summer camp. Um, I assume you have summer camps in Australia as well. Yeah, yeah. Where people go away for the summer. Yeah. So she was a nurse, and uh, when I was six years old, my brother, sister, and I just went to the camp, attended it with her. She was working there, and I auditioned. I don't remember why, it was a long, long, long time ago, I don't remember why, but I, I auditioned for the musical that they were doing for the kids, and it was The Wizard of Oz, and I got cast as the Cowardly Lion. And then when we went back the next summer, I auditioned for two more shows, and I did, I got cast in both of them. And uh, when I went back home to uh, Illinois, I grew up outside Chicago, um, I started doing community theater, um, and it was all sort of my own initiative and I just fell in love with it and my mom was just very very supportive and then from doing community theater we started learning about the professional world and there was a director who greatly encouraged my mom to take me up to Chicago to start to get professional work or try to get professional work and that worked out so I had my first professional job when I was nine years old. Mm. And did you ever study at a drama institution or university? Um, I, didn't, I didn't study at university. I had different teachers over the years, including I went to two summers uh, at Interlochen National Music Camp, which is now called Inter- Interlochen Fine Arts Camp. But it's a really uh, rigorous, high-quality uh, arts program. And that was, that was probably my... When I, the, the, the summer that I was 14, um, I'd done a play in New York that spring with Ed Harris and Judith Ivey, who were wonderful actors, and it was a, it was a really uh, life-changing, eye-opening experience. And then my, the summer of my 14, when I was 14 years old, um, 
was the first time that I really took like intensive acting classes where we really started to dig deep into all the stuff. And uh, I mean, I think that that's the year that I really started to, you know, I, I don't, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but uh, I think that that's what turned me into, you know, what it, what it became to think of it as an art form and a craft, and not just something that I love to do and sort of had talent for. Hmm. And do you think it's important for young actors to get training like that? Sure, yeah. I mean, ideally, of course, if you have, you know, it could be a class, but it could also just be directors that you work with or teachers or, I mean, or, you know, a drama teacher or some, you know, somebody who inspires you to, to grow and dig deeper and understand the opportunity and possibility of what it means to be an actor or what it can mean to be an actor. Mm. And, and what do you think is the most valuable thing that a young performer can do today to break into the industry? Well, I mean, I suppose it just depends on, on where you're growing up. And, you know, where I grew up, I had the benefit of living near Chicago, Illinois, where there was so much, uh, there's so much work there and so many opportunities there. Um, so put yourself into oper- places where you can have the opportunity to uh, get auditions and be seen, um, but also to be trained and learn and grow. Hmm. Now, um, playing the I role... Think expose, I'm sorry, and to expose yourself with, expose yourself to as much different kind of work as possible also to go see theater to see films to see there's now even a, a really high quality work being done on television you know to see to see as much work as possible to start really learning about what inspires you and what you love was there ever a show that you saw that uh, that you were just inspired by i mean i i saw a lot of things coming up um hard to remember at that age well when I was that same year that I did that play the play was called Precious Sons um, I, on Broadway that same season was Lily Tomlin's one woman show with Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe and a John Ware play called The House of Blue Leaves um, those were two shows that blew my mind open and profoundly inspired me hmm well, a show that's been inspiring a lot of people is Rent, and you played Mark in the original production. When you were cast, did you ever envisage that it would become such a phenomenal hit? No, of course not. I don't. When I was cast, it was just a 10-performance workshop. So I was, you know, excited at the opportunity to do something new and, and you know, and interested in what it would become, but there was no possible way to know have a, to have an, an inkling that it would turn into what it turned into. And how much did it change from that workshop to the Broadway opening? Um, quite a bit. There was a, more than a year passed between the 10 performances that we did and when we started rehearsal for Off-Broadway. And in that time, Jonathan Larson made a, a tremendous amount of changes, um, including whole new songs or new lyrics for old songs, uh, changing the structure, but there were certain things that were in it from the beginning and didn't really change at all, like Seasons of Love, like uh, Today for You, like Another Day, Out Tonight. 
I mean, some of those had had minor changes, but those were some of the things that they were like the the tent poles of the of the piece. But then other things were entirely new, like what you own was entirely new. Take me or leave me was entirely new. Uh, we're okay was entirely new. The the title song was uh, basically the same melody, but in an entirely new um, lyric. And then structural was entirely new. Where it added in the whole company, that wasn't a part of the original. Um, Halloween was entirely new, so it was. They went through a lot, a lot, a lot of changes. Hmm. And tragically, the show's composer Jonathan Larson passed away before it opened. How did that affect early performances? Well, I mean, it was uh, to say it was a surprise is a total understatement. Um, it was incredibly shocking and upsetting. Um, but we had to sort of keep forging along and the show itself is so much about coming together in the face of crisis, in the face of tragedy. So we had the gift of the show to help us through that. And it also, we were already incredibly committed to the show and what the show meant, but it just made it that much more true for all of us and that much more meaningful for all of us. And I, and, uh, like dedicates, like sealed it to our souls forever after that. Mm. And do you think that Jonathan would have been proud of the legacy that Rent has had in the past 20 years? I would love to believe so. I can't imagine how he couldn't be proud of it. Um, it's done all the things and more that, that he was hoping to do. He mm. was hoping to change the face of musical theater. I mean, I don't even know, if, I don't even think he would have dreamt of the degree to which that's been the case and the degree to which this piece has meant so much to so many people. You know, it's not just that people are a fan of it, but they, they use such they use phrases like it's changed their life. It's it's altered the way they think about their lives. It's expanded their, their capacity to be present in their lives. It's changed how they feel about the issues that the play talks about. I mean, it's, it's done so much. It's had such a profound ripple effect that I don't think that even he would have dared to believe that that would be possible. Mm. It's a truly phenomenal musical. Now, uh, Thank you. I, mean, I, I happen to speak. Yeah. Now, obviously you, uh, you left the show, but you returned for the 2005 movie version. What was the experience like making a movie of the show that really launched your career? that have happened um, I, you, there have been rumors of when it, when the film might be made and there were there was at least one other time where it looked like it was going to happen and uh, it didn't and at that time it didn't seem like any of us were going to be a part of that and that's really the common the more common occurrence is that original casts don't get to do the film version I mean if you look through the history of cinema when it's an adaptation of a Broadway show there's almost never anyone who's a part of the original cast who's a part of it. And very occasionally there is, but usually it's only maybe one person, um, like Joel Gray and Cabaret. But it's, it's extraordinarily rare. So when it did come around, and we six of us from the original cast got to be part of it, it was such a bonus, it was such a kind of a miracle. That, and I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I think I'm pretty accurate in saying it was, it was uh, because it was so unexpected, we just embraced it with our whole 
parts and we brought up, we brought everything we could to it and we've tried our best to honor the source of it and also do our best to find a, a, a cinematic language with which we could adapt this very theatrical piece. Mm. And were you personally happy with some of the changes made for the film? I mean, some of the things I think were very effective and very clever. I think that the, the montage sequence in Without You was beautiful. I mean, it was a different kind of montage than is in the, than is in the theatrical version, but it's, it's sort of drawing on it, but making it, a, you know, uh, finding a way to tell that story cinematically that honors it, that is, is, is its own uh, version. I think that the expansion of the Tango Maureen into that kind of fantasy world, I think, was really effective and really well done. Um, those are a couple of the changes that I think were really, really, really strong. Um, and I think that some of the other clarifying changes about, like, Benny and Mimi's relationship, I think that that's helpful. Um, and other logistical changes just to help kind of clarify. And, and uh, you, know, there was, you know, there were some things that... I think that Jonathan would have continued to kind of massage in terms of structure and clarity that because he passed away, we, we did little changes after he died, but didn't want to do anything too major to, you know, alter what he had written. So I think there were a couple of those things in the film that, that helped. Mm. And I think the, the, the film's biggest achievement in a way has been, or the legacy of the film, as much as anything else, has been that it's introduced that many more people to this piece and it's brought them to the theatrical version. Certainly. And then after the film, you return to the show alongside a couple of the other original cast members. When you're spending so much time with one show, do you ever fear that you'll become typecast? Well, it's not for me to say if I've been typecast. I mean, I know that it's going to be probably until the, until the day I die, the, the defining moment of, of my career and the defining role and the defining work and I have no problem with that because having been around as long as I have I know how rare and extraordinary it is to be a part of something so special um, but I mean I've gotten the chance to do lots of other kinds of things and uh, you know it depends you know I, I do believe it's possible that there's certain people in the industry of less imagination and so wouldn't necessarily consider me, consider me for certain things because of it but on the other hand you know I just Last year, I got to do these small, budget, low-budget films, and uh, I mean, I guess all my all my characters tend to have a certain level of intelligence, or and, and, and are pretty articulate. And, you know, I mean, I'm not playing like you know a monster or thug, generally, <laughs> but I think in many other ways, the roles that I played last year in those films, for instance, are quite different from Mark Cohen. Um, but you know, all things being equal, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So if that's the cost of being a part, a part of something as extraordinary as Red, then I'll take it. Of course. Now, you also wrote an autobiography and then toured a show about your life. Did you find it difficult opening yourself up to the world? Honestly, no. I, um, I believed in what I had to talk about. I mean, I believed in telling the truth about what I was writing about and I mean, I believed in the opportunity of telling the story of, of the show and of Jonathan and of my mother, uh, losing my mother, that I believed that that was important enough. There wasn't anything that I was really afraid of sharing. And if, you know, if people were going to judge me for the things that I shared, then so be it. Mm. Now, there is an album of the show, but is it something you'd consider touring further in the future? 
Of course there is. Yeah, I would love to. I'd love to get the chance to do my show, you know, the adaptation of it at anywhere and everywhere that I can. Um, with, there are different possibilities circling around right now. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's as much as anything about timing and opportunity and all, all the stars have to align in, in exactly the right way. I've gotten the chance to do it literally different, all over the world. Um, so now we're trying, just trying to figure out the best next steps for it. Hmm. And most recently you appeared in If Then... What attracted you to that project? Primarily, initially, the very the, the first I ever knew about it was that my friend um, Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkie, who wrote Next to Normal, um, wrote the role for me. And Michael Greif, who directed Next to Normal and Rent and, was, and has been a friend of mine for more than 20 years, was directing it. And my friend David Stone, who was the producer of Next to Normal, was producing it. Um, so, and Adina Mandel, who was my friend from Rent, uh, was also in it because they wrote the role for her, so that was more than enough. I mean, that was like that was like pile on enough reasons to want to do it, to be attracted to it. And then when you know we did the first reading of the first draft just about five years ago, and you know it wasn't perfect. It needed, it needed work, of course, as so many things do. But there was a lot of wonderful stuff in it, and for all those reasons, it was something that I wanted to see through. Hmm. And earlier this year, you did wrap up the tour of the show. When you've done it so many times, how do you ensure it's still fresh and doesn't become mechanical? Well, when it's good material, when it's alive material, when the characters are um, complicated, richly drawn human beings, uh, that helps a tremendous amount. Because all there is then to do is just be available to it, and it sort of takes you where you need to go. Um, plus, we had I had the, the pleasure of working with wonderful fellow actors in the company, so we all were there for one another as well. So, I mean, you know, if I was doing, I don't know, some other show, I, it might not be the same case, where it would feel as fresh and alive after so long of being a part of it. Naturally, yeah. And you did stay through a major cast change. How did that affect the dynamic of the show? Well, I knew Jackie Burns. Um, Jackie Burns was Adina's standby on Broadway. So uh, I had a good relationship with her already anyway. Um, so it was pretty seamless. The thing, about, you know, there was a dynamic that Adina and I shared because the, the play, the characters in the play had, had a long history and uh, a real intimacy. And so, of course, Adina and I have that for the you know, decades that we've been friends and known each other, but that was, that was very natural to us. So Jackie and I had to find it, but it didn't take long to find it because Jackie's a wonderful actress in her own right, and she's really committed and really open. So we made our... We, we, but was certainly a transition. Hmm. And another very interesting project that you co-created is BroadwayCon. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why it was something that you were keen to be involved in? So my friend Melissa Anelli, um, she's been she and her partner Stephanie Dornhelm have a company that produces conventions, um, and they had been doing really special conventions around the Harry Potter fandom called LeakyCon, which is inspired by the Leaky Cauldron, which is part of the Harry Potter universe. Um, and I had attended one of them, 
uh, and I was really impressed. And what I was impressed by was it was, you know, it was very fan centered. It was community based. It was in, people were people there were having an, a fantastic time, and they were being inspired. There was a literary element, so it was it was educational. It was celebratory. It was fun. It was silly. It was all the things that you want it to be. So uh, a couple of years later, Melissa and I, I've known Melissa for about almost 20 years, or about 20 years, and uh, she was over at my place watching, we were watching the Tony Awards together, and unbeknownst to me, she and Stephanie were texting each other saying, we should do Broadway Con. Like, they just had this, they just had this sort of brainstorm while they were watching the Tonys. Neil, it was one of the years that Neil Patrick Harris hosted it, and there was, you know, it was like a particularly energetic telecast, and there was like, a, you know, that his vibrancy, I think, and Audrey McDonald was on, and there was just this energy around it that they got kind of like inspired by it. And no one had done a theater-based convention, fan convention before. So a little while later, uh, Melissa brought up this idea to me to sort of run it by me, and I said, of course we should do that. And she said, well, will you please be involved and I said of course I'll be involved so I mean it was just it was their notion but then no you know if I hadn't been to LeakyCon I I don't know it would have been I mean I still would have believed in Melissa because I love her and I think she's a great person but sorry um, but knowing that knowing that she was that she and Stephanie that their company was capable of doing it with such incredible energy and integrity and that I could, when I could go to my colleagues in the theater world and say, would you like to be a part of this? I promise that it will be a wonderful experience for you and for the people coming. It'll be, it's not just going to be some sort of like, you know, I don't even know, uh, it's not going to be some sort of trade show. It's going to be a celebration. It's going to be a community-based uh, everybody's going to rise together to celebrate and honor this world that we all love and are committed to. Mm. So I could say that with, with full authority because I've been there. And then it went so well, even though it was in the middle of a blizzard, our first Broadway con was this past January. It was The attendance was fantastic. The feedback was fantastic. The, and that feedback, not just from the attendees, but from the participants from the industry, from you know, from the theater world, it, it, it couldn't have gone better, and it's going only going to get better because we also learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work. You know, the first time doing it in this in this arena, so we're expanding. We're doing it in a bigger venue, um, so we can reach more people and have more involvement of all different kinds of people. It's it's one of the things I'm proudest of being a part of, and and I have a very you know, hopeful and strong feeling that it's going to be around for a very long time. It, it's a fascinating concept. And one of the things that surprises me most just from reading about it online is that you don't charge for guests' autographs, which I know is a, is a huge revenue, you know, for other conventions. What inspired that quite bold decision from a financial point of view? Well, that's one of, that's been part of the, the model that their company has, uh, done from the beginning, which is the, 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 you, you, you charge a little bit more to get in the door for the weekend, but then everything, so it doesn't become some mercenary.
Hello, are you there? Uh, Anthony, I think we've lost you. Anthony, can you hear me? Hello? Hello? Oh, yes, yes, you're back now. There we are. Sorry about that. That's all right. Um, you're good? Yeah, yeah, I'm good now. You, you were just saying that it's uh, something their company had uh, done from the outset or something. If you could continue that thought for editing purposes, that would be great. Sure, yeah. They, they didn't want people to have to be standing around and for hours to stand in line for autographs and photos, photo ops. I mean, we do have autograph and photo ops opportunities, but they're all lotteries. So you put my, you know, I'm not directly involved in all these logistical things, but my understanding is you put, you sign up for the event, you put down the list of people that you would like the opportunity to have a photo op or autograph session with, and then there's a lottery system, so it's limited, so neither the artists involved nor the fans involved have to spend endless time in these lines. So it's efficient, it uses everybody's time as meaningfully as possible, and it's not like gouging anyone for more money. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, clearly, it... that's part of the part of the philosophy. Mm. And, and clearly, it proved very successful because you're doing it again. But is it something you'd consider doing in other countries around the world, like the UK or Australia, where there's still a huge following for musical theatre and Broadway? Um, it's possible. It's possible that the UK seems the most likely. Uh, other place because it has the West End, um, but we're just beginning to explore even the possibility of that we still need to keep continue to uh, demonstrate that we can pull this off year after year effectively. Mm. Mm. Now, um, looking forward, what have you got lined up that you can tell our listeners about? Um, as I said, I'm. Um, working on the next steps for Without You for doing my show in as many places as I can. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of concerts, which I do periodically when my schedule allows. Adam Pascal, the original Roger, and I do those together. Every once in a while, I'll do them apart, like if our schedules don't line up. For instance, in December, I'll be doing two weeks in London of a concert. Um, and then I have a couple films that I did last summer that are now just now beginning to make the festival rounds. and. Hopefully they'll get more distribution. I mean, the, the landscape of film distribution has changed so much, especially for independent small films that with the internet and streaming services and things. I don't know exactly how how and when those will be uh, readily available to the public, but they're they're both films that I'm proud of. So I hope that they'll get to have a life that people can experience them. Mm. If you'd like to, and I'm looking for you... the next bigger project, but I'm pretty picky. So I don't know, you know, I'm not like, I'm not scouring the earth. I'm not eagerly saying I need something. I want to, I want it to be the right fit. Mm. So is there a musical that you haven't done, but you would absolutely love to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I got close a couple times to playing the MC in Cabaret, playing the MC in Cabaret, and that's something that I would love to do. But it's, you know, I don't know if and when I'll have the opportunity again. Um, one time I got close, you know, I was called back and almost got it. And one time I was offered it but couldn't do it because of my schedule. 
Well, finally, for fans who would like to stay in touch with you, where can people find you online? Um, the, the best way is Twitter and, I guess, Twitter and Instagram. Um, I don't really, I, mean, I don't post text on Instagram so much, except, you know, pictures, but uh, Twitter, uh, I will try to put as much info about what I'm up to as possible. Um, my, my handle is at albinokid, one word. Um, and I also, you know, everyone's all engaged in other kinds of public conversations on there. Hmm. Well, Anthony, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That was my chat with the wonderful Anthony Rapp, and the link to his Twitter bio is in the show notes for this podcast. Now, don't forget, as always, check out our wonderful supporters via Vision Entertainment, Mad Zombie Collectibles, and Palace Nova Cinemas, all wonderful people who we thank very dearly. And don't forget that the podcast does need your support. So please, if you have the money, go over to the donate button on the homepage and give what you can. Anything is always appreciated. Well, I've been your host, Benjamin May McKay, and we've got one more podcast for you this year, and that's another double interview. We've got the star of the hit musical Hamilton on Broadway, Brandon Victor Dixon, who was in news headlines just the other week when uh, he gave a speech to uh, the vice president-elect, and then a chat with Midge Err, who is an OBE-winning musician who co-wrote the song Do They Know It's Christmas. They're both on the next episode of Talk To Me, so stay tuned, and we'll see you for one more later in December. Bye for now.